Good afternoon. My name is Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here at the Cato Institute. 25 years ago this month, the Soviet Union was dissolved. More specifically, exactly on this day, December 8th, 25 years ago, Russian President Boris Yeltsin, Ukrainian President Leonid Kravchuk, and Belarusian Parliament Chairman Stanislav Shushkevich signed the Velovetsia Accords that dissolved the Soviet Union. This was, without a doubt, one of the most significant and positive events of the second half of the 20th century. Within days, the Parliament of Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus signed the accords, and on December 25, 1991, the Soviet flag was brought down and Gorbachev relinquished power. On December 31st, the Soviet Union came to a legal end, and its end, it is important to point out, came about legally since it was done in accordance to the law. It was the end of the Cold War. With the fall of the Soviet Union came great expectations and euphoria about a, a new era in international relations and about a new Russia that would become a friend and an ally of the world's market democracies by leaving communism behind and indeed becoming a market democracy itself. But the world was in largely uncharted territory and the expectations did not live up to reality. Indeed, they were very far apart, and the, the, that turned out, uh, the contrast between the two turned out to be quite stark. Nobody predicted uh, the dramatic outcomes we have seen in Russia since then, including the huge contraction in output in so-called reform years, some progress establishing greater freedoms and democracy, followed by a reassertion of authoritarianism and the central role of the Russian state in the, in the economy, in politics, and in society. And of course, the return of Russia uh, as an aggressive military actor on the world stage. Russia may have abandoned communism, but it did not create a market economy, or a democracy, uh, or a market democracy, or a free society in its place. On the Human Freedom Index, it ranks largely as an unfree uh, country. It ranks 115th out of 159 countries. The unpredictable trajectory that uh, Russia took requires an explanation. What went wrong in Russia? What mistakes should it have avoided? How does it compare in its transition with other countries that moved away from socialism? What role uh, did individual political leaders, ideology, the Russian elite, and even the West play in the outcomes? Even after 25 years, there are still important issues related to Russia's transition that have not gotten significant attention. This distinguished panel will address some of the issues in what promises to be a stimulating discussion. And we have three uh, excellent speakers. We're going to begin uh, right away then with our first speaker, Anders Osland, who is a resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Uh, prior to that, he was a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute. He's a world-renowned uh, a scholar and expert on the economics of transition, on the economies of Russia, uh, the Ukraine, and Eastern Europe. Prior to, to working at the Atlantic Council, he was also at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he was a director of the Russian and Eurasia program. He's, been at the, he's worked at the Brookings Institution as a scholar there and as a scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center. He has been an economic advisor during various uh, governments at different uh, time periods in Russia, the Ukraine, and elsewhere. 
He has been a Swedish diplomat. He is a member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences. He's an adjunct professor of Georgetown University. He is widely published. He has many books that he's written on these subjects. Please help me welcome our friend Anders Austin. Thank you very much, Ian, and it's a pleasure to be here <clears throat> at the Cato Institute uh, again. And of course, uh, this is a topic that we really need uh, to discuss. Uh, the topic given today is what went wrong. Russia 25 years after the fall of the Soviet Union. But uh, I would like to uh, start with what went right. I should say that uh, both Andrei Larionov and I were working, uh, advising the Russian government uh, at the time. So we were sitting in uh, uh, the same corridor in the, the old uh, building of the Central Committee of uh, the Soviet Union that had then been taken over by the <clears throat> young Russian reform uh, government. And uh, let me take all the points that went right uh, first. And that was quite a lot that we tend to forget uh, today. <clears throat> to me, the big breakthrough was on the 12th of June, when Boris Yeltsin was elected democratically president of uh, Russia, the first uh, president of Russia. And he got 57% of the votes all over the whole communist establishment that was still ruling was against him. Uh, but the democratic breakthrough really came with a failed coup of August uh, 19 uh, to 21 uh, in 91. And you all have seen uh, President Yeltsin standing on the, <clears throat> the tank. After that, there was a lull. People wonder, where is Putin, uh, Yeltsin? Why isn't he doing anything? And then on the 28th of October, he appeared with the greatest speech he ever did. This is the radical reform speech where he asked for cooperation with all kinds of Western uh, institutions. Uh, it was mainly written by Yegor Gaidar, who uh, <clears throat> was uh, soon afterwards appointed deputy prime minister and the real leader of uh, uh, the reform team. But in between, the parliament voted overwhelmingly for this reform speech, which was effectively the, uh, 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 the program. It was two newspaper uh, uh, pages, but that's how much uh, uh, you need. And then we got the young reform uh, government. These reformers were 35 years old, economists coming. These were the uh, children of the academic nomenclatura in Moscow and St. Petersburg, the people who were the best educated you can find. Uh, virtually everybody speaking English, which was then a sign of how connected they were uh, with the Western world. <clears throat> what I think was one of the truly greatest achievements by uh, uh, Boris Yeltsin, that was to finish off the Soviet Union peacefully. He realized 
that uh, the Soviet Union could not hang together. After Ukraine, on the 1st of December uh, 1991, voted with 90% majority for independence. Uh, Yeltsin understood, the chips are down. Now we had better finish off the Soviet Union as fast as possible, otherwise we will have a civil war. Only a person of true greatness can think daringly like that and act. And this was very much uh, Yeltsin himself who did it. After that, uh, the young reformers started uh, 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 <clears throat> preparing the various parts of the reforms. Of course, such things can always be done better, but the important thing is do it instantly because that's when you have time. And on the 2nd of January, uh, these main reforms were implemented. And I would emphasize two reforms that happened instantly. One was uh, uh, near elimination of uh, price uh, regulation and uh, sharp cuts of uh, arms procurement, officially by 85%. And here everybody thought that the Soviet military industrial uh, complex is not beatable. And then these young reformers managed to beat the military industrial complex in no time, showing that if you act fast and hard, uh, you can accomplish great things. In reality, uh, the cut was probably 70%, but that uh, uh, was great in itself. And after that, we saw a fast uh, privatization. So then I come to the topic, uh, as we have been given, what went wrong? And as uh, Martin Luther <coughs> has taught us, the greatest uh, sins are not those of commission, but those of omission. And I would emphasize five serious sins of uh, uh, omission. The first was uh, that uh, the reformers failed to get control over the central bank. This happened on the 22nd of November, 91. So you can see how, put, uh, how Yeltsin's grasp of uh, the parliament slipped away quite soon. And, uh, uh, this was a serious uh, problem. And the man who then became governor of the Central Bank of Russia was quite nice. I knew him reasonably well, Georg Matyuchin. Uh, as most of the people we are discussing here his, uh, uh, has passed away. But he had an unfortunate idea. He thought that one should have a moderate monetary emission of only 10% a month what he did not realize is that this would lead to near uh, hyperinflation, as it did. As a consequence, the reformers were against him, and the non-reformers wanted even more emission. So this was the first big problem, and it was simply the reformers did not have a majority in the parliament so that their candidate could win. The second <clears throat> problem was that oil and gas prices were kept very low. Here, Diego Gaidar had the right idea. He wanted to get them unified early on. Uh, while 
uh, he did not manage uh, to convince uh, President Yeltsin uh, <clears throat> about it. Uh, this was the best way of making money ever. In 91, you could buy one ton of, one ton of oil in Russia at the official price for $1. With the right contracts and uh, uh, some bank financing, you could sell that abroad for $100 a ton. So you get 100 times the money. This is how essentially all the Russian oligarchs made their initial uh, money. Uh, and this had to stop. On the other hand, it's a big problem if you have to raise industrial uh, inputs so sharply uh, in price. The third thing was that the ruble zone was essentially the only non-military uh, Soviet institution uh, <clears throat> that uh, persisted. This meant that 15 central banks were competing in issuing ruble credits. The reformers understood that this uh, was necessary to break up, but they didn't quite know how to do it. I'm not aware of uh, President Yeltsin even having bothered much about this uh, uh, problem. But the con consequence was hyperinflation throughout uh, uh, the former Soviet Union. Russia had 2,500% inflation in 92. You don't want uh, uh, a reformed government uh, to stand for uh, hyperinflation, but that was unfortunately the case. And then we have a, a fourth issue. We're coming back to the problem of uh, the reformers not being able to appoint a uh, head of a central bank. What uh, President Yeltsin should have done was to dissolve the parliament early on when he could get the parliament to vote for its own dissolution. He uh, would have been able to do that in the first half of November uh, 91, but it was a short period when he had sufficient political uh, strength. And um, what uh, Yeltsin writes himself in his uh, 94 memoirs, it is that he wanted uh, to focus on uh, economic reform, and he thought that politics could be done later. The big lesson is that politics can't be done later. You have to have a clear political base for reforms, otherwise you will be beaten, uh, because that was what happened. And then the fifth problem was that there was no Western uh, aid for, uh, for reforms. The question of Western aid is not how much it is, but that it's timely and that it's sufficient. You often hear uh, Central Europeans claiming today that they were so great so they didn't need any uh, Western assistance. That's not true. Poland got $1 billion, which was exactly what they needed in time, and therefore they could stabilize. They could have a stabilization uh, fund, which took down inflation. This, uh, <clears throat> and uh, uh, similar, the three Baltic countries it needed one billion, they got it. Rightly so, 
but uh, without it, they had been in deep trouble. Even so, the Baltic countries had 1,000% inflation in 1992. Uh, uh, so then I will turn to the consequences of this, uh, these uh, sins of omission. Uh, and you see the delayed energy price unification bred uh, rent-seeking. All these people who bought oil for $1 and sold it for $100 a ton. And that bred oligarchs. And what do you do if you are a billionaire and others are dirt poor? You buy the politics. And this is what happened in Russia and much of the former uh, Soviet Union. And these oligarchs, they insisted on a large budget deficit so that they could get even more money. And that caused the financial crash in uh, August uh, 98, somewhat uh, simplified. And when the rent seekers bought politics, that meant the end of freedom, the end of, uh, uh, <clears throat> of uh, uh, democracy. And, uh, and uh, th that leads to pervasive corruption and economic decline for uh, uh, one decade. So what did it look like? Here you see uh, the picture. I have here taken Poland that did the radical reforms as they should be done uh, in the blue. No. And I have uh, Russia in red. I've added Ukraine here also in yellow, which you can see is quite a similar feature. So this is a question, does democracy win or does uh, rent-seeking uh, win? This is what we are seeing. So the blue line, Poland had two years of decline and then massive economic growth at 5-6% a year in the mid-90s, while uh, Russia and Ukraine had almost one decade of economic decline. If you have one decade of economic decline after hyperinflation, you can guess how popular democracy is. Not very. Democracy is then being connected with corruption and economic decline. Democracy must perform better, and that means a more radical action. So what was the difference? Poland, early for liberalization, stabilization, control of corruption, and high growth. Russia, part, partial uh, early liberalization, uh, massive rent-seeking, corruption and worse growth, and living standards. This is quite easy to understand. The contrasts are enormous, as you could see from the early graph. And here you can see the contrast in another way. Here you have democracy and corruption. Uh, on the, uh, Y-axis, I have uh, political uh, freedom uh, from Freedom House. The higher up you are, the freer you are. And uh, the lower down, the less democratic. And on the other axis, I have transparency, international control of corruption. The further to the right you are, the less corruption you have. And you can see here uh, two clear groups. You have a positive equilibrium of the EU countries uh, uh, that have control of both uh, corruption and they have full democracy. 
and then you have a negative uh, equilibrium down in the left corner of massive corruption and authoritarianism. Corruption is not an accident or a mistake. It's a design because it favors the rulers and they prefer to have uh, corruption that makes them rich. And then we have a few countries in between. And the country I today find the most interesting is Ukraine because it's as corrupt as the bad countries and it's very open. No country is so corrupt and so open at the same time as Ukraine. That gives a hope that there is a dynamism that can improve things. So my final conclusion is that this man does not solve but aggravates Russia's problem. Thank you. Thanks very much. Our next speaker is David Satter. He's a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, and he's a fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute of the Johns Hopkins University of Advanced International Studies. He has been a, uh, the Moscow correspondent for the Financial Times. He was a correspondent on Soviet affairs for the Wall Street Journal. He's been a fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and at the Hoover Institution and a visiting professor at the University of Illinois. He's written three books about Russia and is widely published uh, in the country's leading uh, newspapers and opinion magazines. Please help me welcome David Sayer. Uh, thank you. I'm afraid I have a sore throat, so I hope you can hear me. Uh, can you, by the way? Is it okay? All right, good. I'll make use of the microphone. Um, on the subject of the Soviet Union, uh, it's important to bear in mind that uh, the, the transition in Russia was enormous. Today, Russia is, is unrecognizable in many respects uh, from what existed under the Soviet Union. But there are two things uh, that uh, the Soviet Union bequeathed to present-day Russia. And, and those two factors which uh, affect the psychology of the country have, have determined what we have in, in Russia today. There were two basic principles that un, underpinned uh, the, the mental universe of the Soviet Union. One was the conviction that economic considerations always have priority over spiritual or ethical considerations, that law questions of right and wrong, politics, culture, all of these things are merely a reflection of underlying economic conditions. So therefore, if you get the underlying conditions right, which is insofar as human history is the story of class conflict, it, in the Soviet sense, all that meant was uh, the dominance of the proper class, uh, everything else would follow. You would have a democratic society. You would have prosperity. You would have uh, a, the end of war and the end of class conflict. The, the other proposition was that the individual really has no inherent importance. And this, by the way, was a reflection of the fundamental assumptions of, of Soviet ideology, which were based on the notion that uh, the world is purely material, 
and that all human progress and uh, uh, development is, is, is based on the uh, neutral operations of matter in motion. Under, with such a metaphysics, of course, there's no room for any kind of, of, of moral framework. And there's no room for assuming that the individual has any value of his own. After all, if he's just an atom uh, who derives his, his importance from his participation in the social process, how can you attribute any importance to him as an individual? And uh, those two propositions were carried over into the into the new period after the fall of the Soviet Union. In terms of policy, it was taken for granted that the only thing that it was necessary to do was to create a state based on private ownership. If Marx held that, that uh, socialism was the abolition of private property, the, the, the young reformers who took over after the fall of the Soviet Union assumed that the only thing that was necessary in order to establish a free market economy was putting property in private hands. Didn't matter in whose hands, didn't matter if those hands were criminal, didn't matter how it happened. Uh, the, the, mar the, the, the creation of, of an economy based on private property would solve all problems. At least that's what they thought. Um, and they were very fearful uh, these were people who actually had contempt for the Russian people. The young reformers uh, had made their careers, in effect, by saying things they didn't believe, working in communist ideological uh, establishments, pretending to, to believe the, the cliches of communist propaganda while secretly considering themselves r r radical free marketers. And, of course, that kind of enforced or non-enforced, because it was really voluntary in the service of their careers, hypocrisy, engendered a kind of hostility toward ordinary people who believed all this nonsense, which they were forced to mouth in the service of their careers. And so when it came time to implement uh, policies of economic reform, there was no consideration for the welfare of the population. The important thing was for those policies to be put in place as fast as possible, that there be no possibility of those policies ever being reevaluated or reversed, that the process would quick, that the process quickly reach what they called a point of no return, beyond which it would be impossible to undo what they had done, regardless of the democratic will of the people. And, uh, in the, and, and therefore, they closed their eyes to the massive corruption of the reform process. Uh, to go into every aspect of that process would be very difficult, because especially in the amount of time that I, I want to limit myself to, since, as, as, as my fellow panelist Anders pointed out to me, Goethe explained that self-limitation is really the essence of, uh, of um, uh, intellectual achievement. So we'll see if I, can get a, if I can do that. But in any case, there are a couple of moments that are really important. One was, of course, voucher privatization. Vouchers were given out to the population on the, on the, with the idea that every Russian received about a voucher worth his share of, uh, of the country's wealth. In fact, no one knew what to do with these vouchers. After 74 years of communism, the idea that you're getting a voucher and you can invest it in, in, in 
industries that have become joint stock companies, uh, uh, you didn't have a lot of savvy investors in 1991 in the Rus in the so post-Soviet Russian population. People had no idea what to do with their vouchers. Derelicts appeared on the street, uh, holding up signs uh, at bus stations and uh, and metro metro stations, holding up signs saying, "I'll buy buy your voucher." And they were so they they were so shabby that they reinforced the impression that these vouchers couldn't be couldn't possibly be worth anything. But behind those derelicts were criminal gangs who collected huge numbers of vouchers and used them to buy up Russian industry. Uh, Anders has already talked about the way in which energy prices were controlled when the rest of the prices in the country were liberated. Uh, the, 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 the combination of voucher privatization and the ability to, to exchange bribes for licenses that allowed people to export energy you know, created the created the oligarchs who eventually became very powerful in the country the second stage of privatization was no better this was money privatization and by that time it was based entirely on bribery almost entirely on bribery the um, bribing an official was the most important destination for your starting capital uh, if you could own an official you could get the permissions that he controlled, giving you the money to buy further officials. Boris Berezovsky, later to become one of the most important people in the, in the Yeltsin entourage, was just an expert at, at buying officials. And, and those who, who, who were able to take over the property of the former Soviet Union that was created through the joint efforts of the entire population, of course, were first of all, were not concerned to develop that, that, that those assets, at least not at first. Country experienced an economic collapse that was almost unprecedented. And under those circumstances, the population also uh, suffered. It was a demographic collapse. And the, the uh, people today, when they look at Putin's popularity, they don't understand the suffering of people under in the, during the 1990s. Uh, and they question it. They don't realize that the demographic loss of population, what's called surplus deaths in the 1990s, was 6 million. That's the number of deaths that occurred over and beyond what could have been expected on the basis of existing, tre uh, existing trends. Well, given that situation, who's going to vote for Yeltsin? And, in 19 and who's going to support him or support whatever stooge he managed to put in place in order to protect his interests? So that in 1998-1999, popularity of Yeltsin had reached 2%. And when uh, Vladimir Putin was appointed prime minister, his popularity was 2%. And it was at that point that apartment buildings began to be blown up in, in Russia. Our four buildings were blown up in the middle of the night, killing 300 people. 300 people randomly selected, murdered in the middle of the night. And the, 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 uh, uh, the result was that the country was, was, was paralyzed with fear. And uh, Putin emerged. He said he was going to kill the terrorists wherever he found them. If he had found them in the toilet, he'd kill them in the toilet. And the, the, the attention of the population, all of the anger of the population over the pillaging of the country was redirected against the Chechens. And Putin went from being just some factotum who was selected by Yeltsin to pre preserve 
the Yeltsin era corruption, became a national hero. Uh, and as a result uh, of his successful with the use of, of unprecedentedly barbaric tactics, even for Russia, in, in Chechnya, became uh, the new Russian president. Uh, the, the, the true story of the apartment bombings was buried, uh, partially because Russian society was, civil society basically didn't exist. It was too disorganized. Uh, and under conditions of war and a new election and mass confusion. And plus, I must say, the, the United States, I've been looking at documents I'm beginning to get as a result of a Freedom of Information Act request. Our people were incredibly uncurious. Uh, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright's response to the apartment bombings was, we condemn uh, uh, terror, the blowing up of buildings and terrorism as antithetical to a democratic society. Wow. Did she think that they're consistent with a democratic society? Did she ask who was responsible for them? In any case, uh, the, the, the evidence that, in fact, that this was, this was carried out by the FSB in order to, to, to move Putin into the presidency, protect the results of the, of the privatization of the 1990s, has come out you know, uh, steadily in the following years. There were um, uh, three important indications that this was an act of terror carried out against the Russian people by the Yeltsin entourage in order to move, uh, at the direction of the Yeltsin entourage in order to move Putin into power. First, of course, was the discovery of a bomb in a building in Ryazan, which was luckily defused before it could go off. Three FSB agents were arrested. The FSB then announced that, in fact, that was a training exercise, something that no one believed, especially no one I talked to when I went to Ryazan. The second was the fact that Gennady Seleznyov, the Speaker of the Duma, uh, announced that uh, a building had been blown up on, on September 13th in the city of Vol Volgodonsk. It was blown up three days later uh, in Volgodonsk. The building that went up on the 13th was in Moscow. No, there's no explanation for how he knew a building was going to be blown up three days in advance. And finally, the FSB d d destroyed the first uh, a picture of one of the suspects in the bombing of the building on Goryanova Street and substituted a false picture. But there's in you know a mountain of 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 circumstantial, convincing, objective information that shows what really happened. Well, everything else then makes sense. Uh, you know, why do we have a government that uses terroristic tactics? That, it, that is, why do we have the assassination of, of opposition leaders and journalists like Boris Nemtsov, Anna Politkovskaya, uh, Yuri Shachachikhin, and, uh, and many others? Uh, why do we have uh, a regime that was ready to open fire with flamethrowers on a... On a on a gymnasium filled with parents and teachers in Beslan in 2004? Why do we have the war in, in, in Ukraine? Well, obviously, because what was put in place was uh, a, a kleptocratic regime which combines this, with the unlimited greed with the, the mentality of the KGB as it was honed 
for years in the Soviet Union. Something that could be called Czechism and, the, and really can be defined as the notion that the individual counts for nothing compared to the objectives of the state and whichever mediocrity is running the state represents the state and his interests are identical with those of the state. So what has to be done under these circumstances? How can the legacy of the Soviet Union, which continues to shape events in post-Soviet Russia, be dispelled? In fact, I think, they have, is the situation hopeless? Uh, one might think so after all the efforts that went into overthrowing the Soviet regime. But in fact, uh, just as Glasnost may, uh, dismantled the Soviet system of power, truthful information about the real history of Russia during these last 25 years can, can provide a basis for creating a new future for Russia. What I've argued in, in, my, in my book, by the way, it's my fourth book, not third, but what I argued in there was that, uh, that what Russia needs is a new truth commission. Uh, and that can be carried out outside of Russia because a lot of the thinking part of Russia is now outside in the diaspora. The conditions have become so un intolerable inside Russia that thinking people and creative people are now concentrated more and more in the diaspora, but they continue to have ties to Russia itself. And only that can create this, the conditions for the next step, which is have a, a new constituent assembly capable of creating a, a, a regime based on a real separation of power. But, uh, the, but all of this underlines uh, the importance of understanding what really happened 25 years ago and why it was that the lessons of the Soviet period were not learned. Because, in fact, it's not too late to learn them now. Thanks very much, and thanks for staying on time. The, the master really does stay within the limits. We're going to hear now from my colleague, Andrei Ilarionov, who is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here at Cato. Andre uh, was the chief economic advisor to Russian President Vladimir Putin from the year 2000 to December 2005. Uh, before the, during that time, he also served as uh, Putin's personal representative to the G8. Uh, pr prior to that, uh, Andre served as a chief economic advisor to the prime minister, uh, Viktor Cherdomeridin, uh, and he, <clears throat> he resigned uh, in February 1994 to protest changes in, in government economic policy. Andre has been very involved from the beginning of the transition uh, process in most of the big uh, changes. He's been a participant or an observer. Uh, he came in with the first group of, as Anders mentioned, with the first group of uh, reformers from St. Petersburg. And as I say, he has participated in the economic policy reform uh, and as uh, an observer to, to the big uh, events that have occurred. And since the year 2006, he has been with us at the Cato Institute. We're happy to have him here. He really is uh, one of Russia's most uh, forceful and articulate advocates of the open society. Please help me welcome Andrei Larinov. Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. 
First of all, I would like to uh, uh, express my uh, sincere hope that uh, today's event is really very important, not only because of this historical coincidence um, about which uh, Jan already was talking about, but uh, because of opportunity that this panel, I hope, would give us to have a very open, very honest, and very serious discussions on the issues are really extremely important for Russia, but not only for Russia, and not only for that part of the world, but for maybe for uh, all of us. And I also express my gratitude to my friends and colleagues, Anders and David, for coming here and for giving us opportunity uh, to listen and understanding different approaches and different attitudes to this very complex and very complicated uh, problem that we're discussing today. And now um, I'm moving to my uh, presentation that will be here. It's unusually short, uh, only 32 slides, but I'll try to be uh, fast. Um, so first of all, a couple of uh, very short observations. The first one, um, it's important to look into the kind of evolution of understanding of nature of transition. Initially, it was devoted mostly to almost uh, uh, in transition in, in very narrow sense, economic transition. Later, uh, there was a lot of more discussion about institutional changes in institutional transitions. Now, uh, there is a talk about uh, transition in more broader sense, uh, evolution from one distinct type of society to another one, with all or almost all elements or components of this uh, society subject to change. At least I'm trying to use this uh, last approach. And here I put uh, some kind of at least seven most important uh, areas in which uh, transition could happen and did happen and should happen in those countries that did not underwent transition, did not go, uh, undergo transition. Economic system, private prosperity, legal system, political system, civil society, ethnic and national settlement, foreign policy and national security, ideology, uh, personal safety. And here you can see in the case of Russia what uh, descriptions can be given to the so-called old regime circa 1984 and what kind of new regime People in Russia, people outside of Russia, people in other transition countries uh, were looking for uh, in future. This is the goals and dreams. If we look uh, not from the ideal approach, but from the real actual transition, at least in the case of Russia, uh, we would find uh, very substantial uh, drastic differences between what was expected uh, what was the goal of transition and what has really happened in reality. As you can see this comparison of old regime and new regime around this year, and you can see that yes, uh, there is a market economy, but it's not free market economy. Uh, poverty uh, for a long time was stayed in Russia, but in many other countries, living standards still lower than it was under Soviet regime, under communist regime. Um, instead of rule of party, that was uh, uh, before, and rule of law, as many expected, we have rule of thug, or rule of thugs. Uh, instead of communist dictatorship, uh, we have hard authoritarianism. Some people already claim that it's a semi-totalitarianism. Uh, civil society was embryonic, now suppressed. Uh, instead of multi-ethnic empire, uh, we have ethnic conflicts, internal and external wars, violation of international borders. Uh, instead of confrontation on global levels, we have confrontation at global, regional, and national levels. Instead of communist ideology, we have chauvinistic and imperialistic ideology. And instead of low, relatively low personal safety, we sometimes have 
absence of personal safety. So it is not what people expected 25 years ago about that, and not what they are dreaming of. So second observation, very important. I think evolution of factors uh, explaining success or failing transition. Initially, a lot of attention has been uh, put uh, forward uh, about these so-called structural factors. Level of economic development, education of population, uh, length of existence under communist regime, access to open sea, even the, my so-called favorite uh, indicator, distance to Brussels, that could explain the success. Okay, later it moved to more to uh, discussion about the uh, quality of economic policies, especially the speed, scale, very famous debate about shock therapy versus gradualism and so on. Now, and I'd like to actually uh, use this approach more, uh, the discussion moved to the area of sociological and psychological features and reasons and factors behind transition, especially in relations to leaders of transition and social strata they represent, their personal characters, interests, knowledge, ideologies, worldviews, their personal propensity to corruption and readiness to use coercion, violence, aggressions, and so on. And from this point of view, from this personal a psychological and sociological approach, just very snapshot, we cannot have time to discuss it, but just uh, to snapshot about the personal approach of such a person like Mikhail Gorbachev, so-called so Soviet Union swan song. This is a liberating revolution of the last six years of the Soviet Union. We just mentioned, certainly Mikhail Gorbachev is not perfect. We have a lot of uh, some kind of reservations about him, and a lot of critics, and they were deserved. But nevertheless, looking from this distance of 25 or 30 years, uh, uh, 30 years now, we can see how much has been achieved within this period of time, starting from Glasnost and Perestroika to uh, market economic reform started in 1987. Actually, Anders has written the first book about this market reform uh, of Gorbachev in 1987. It was a was very serious uh, book, one of the first, if not the first uh, in the West. Uh, withdrawal of Soviet troops from Afghanistan, political reform, reforms of uh, relations between republics, support not very many people know that, support that Soviet KGB provided to revolutions in the Central Europe in 1899. So it's something not has been discussed uh, widely. Uh, unification of Germany, uh, dissolution of the Warsaw Pact, uh, fail of the August Coup, and peaceful dissolution of the Soviet Union. I stop here, it's a huge topic, but we will not. But compare this picture with a personal uh, element of Gorbachev on the some kind of new Russia hawk scream, I would say, uh, that we're having uh, over the last 17 years. And just once again, we cannot uh, go through that, but it's an endless list of killing, murders, assassinations, aggressions, terror, of many, many cases. David was uh, touching at least one of the most uh, important and very serious story, but this dozens, hundreds, if not thousands, similar stories on differences. And I will just mention the most important ones, not only one of the kind of terror cases within Russia, but on the international scale. This is wars. Uh, several gas wars against Belarus and Ukraine. After that, cyber war against Estonia. After that, open conventional war, aggression against Georgia in year 2008 with occupation of the 20% of Georgian territory until today. After that, war against Ukraine, occupation, annexation of Crimea. Now it's participation in war in Syria. And we, based on knowledge about the last 17 years, we do understand 
it is not the end. If this system would continue, it will be continuing with terror, with aggression, with assassinations and killings. Okay, now just once again, comparing these uh, two periods, uh, USSR, Soviet Union, was not particularly peaceful state, as we all know. But if we compare frequency of aggressions that have, have been waged by Soviet Union after the Second World War and by so-called New Russia, some people would say called Democratic Russia, Liberal Russia, uh, what, Market Russia, and we can see that the frequency of attacks, aggressions against neighbors of the so-called New Russia is at least twice as higher than even in the case of the former Soviet Union, which was once again, we all know, it was not extremely peaceful state. One of the explanations of this aggression is definitely is authoritarian regime, non-political freedom regime. And here's the chart that has been built on data from the Freedom House, uh, Index of Political Freedom, Combination of Political Rights and Civil Liberties. And you can see under Gorbachev, this is a kind of fascinating uh, liberating revolution, democratic revolution, that uh, Soviet Union jumped from the absolutely non-free country to the brink of to be a politically free country. That was in 91. What happened after that? Under Yeltsin, it never actually reached even the last year of the Soviet Union, and after that falling down, and after Putin, Medvedev, and Putin, it went down, and now for the last 10 years, index of political freedom in Russia is lower than it was in the last four years of the Soviet Union. It's quite a remarkable so-called achievement that today, without communists, the political regime is much less freer than uh, with so-communists. Just to give you some kind of understanding how it looks internationally, Russia, which is in 91, was just once again on the break of free countries, went down and became lower than the world average, lower than Asia average, lower than sub-Saharan uh, Africa average, <laughs> lower than the Middle East average. And it is now already for uh, 12 years lower than even Middle East, the worst region in the world by political freedom. Just one particular uh, example, just to understand the, the situation. Just for a long time, just, I was actually arguing when I was uh, even in just uh, uh, economic advisor, I was talking okay, that Russia is uh, under so-called Zimbabwean disease. I was wrong. So it looks like uh, Russian disease is much stronger. So Zimbabwe now is slightly, so we cannot use it as a kind of example to follow, but even Zimbabwe today is freer than today's Russia. And by uh, destruction of uh, political freedom, Russia occupies 180th place among 180 countries in the world. So what an achievement. Another demonstration of what has happened. This is an election fraud index in Russia over the last uh, 15 years. And you can see the higher the, uh, this uh, index, that means the kind of more uh, falsification in, uh, in elections. The freest, uh, the kind of the most honest elections happened between 91 and 96. And since uh, 99, actually there is no honest election in Russia. So that is why if you have any information about what the so-called parliamentary election, the par uh, presidential election in Russia, they do not have anything common with reality. In the last so-called election in September year 2016, uh, Central Electoral Commission just created, just created from 
nowhere, 17 million words, or people's going stolen. So that is why just, uh, that's something that even the Venezuelan government does not do, which is an interesting example. So if we look, what is essence of this regime? It's called, it's called that the regime is uh, full with so-called siloviki, the people from the army, uh, Ministry of Interior, uh, but most importantly, political police, secret police, um, intelligence services. And now, according to sociological study, so this open and secret Slovakia occupies 77% of the top 1,000 position in the Russian political elite. And people with civil background occupies only 23% of positions. If we look into the uh, division of power in modern Russia, it's kind of special indicator has been introduced, a kind of distribution of flashlighted cars among three branches of power, judicial, legislative, and executive. And you can see judicial uh, branch has only 0.3%, legislative 1.9, and almost 98% concentrated on executive power, with three quarters given to Siloviki. It gives you some flavor of, of the nature of this political regime. Now we can look into the why all it happened, why such political regime has been created in Russia. My answer, so-called intermediate answer, will be impact of five catastrophes that happened in Russia over the last 25 years. Economic, demographic, catastrophe with law and order, sociological catastrophe, and catastrophe of mentality. Very briefly, economic catastrophe. You can see here the GDP per capita in Russia over the last 130 years, and you can see the kind of the four most important catastrophes. First World War and Civil War, uh, uh, starvation of 1932-33, uh, Second World War, and this period, which is sometimes called period of radical, liberal, democratic, and so-called reforms. That's comparable. If you can just compare the Russian uh, lo losses in output in Russia with Okay, Russian cases and U.S. cases. If you can see here um, at the very, uh, very uh, left corner, USA, year 2007-11, this is a, something that's called here in the United States Great Recession, if I'm not mistaken, right? That's a Great Recession. The uh, another uh, uh, blue line is, you see USA 1929-40. This is a Great Depression. And now you can look Russia red. This is, it will be Russia in the Second World War. Uh, Russia in the First World War, the Green Line, and Russia in the so-called radical reforms, 1989 to year 2006, this kind of whatever, violet uh, line. So it is comparable only to the losses in the First World War. It is by far uh, deeper, larger, longer, uh, with more destruction than during the Second World War, and during any recessions and depressions in the United States history. Another demographic catastrophe, you can see also these four demographic catastrophes, uh, David has mentioned it already. According to different estimates of demographers, the total cumulative losses of uh, people over the last uh, 25 years was between 11.5 and 19.5 million people. I mean, just due to lower birth rate, due to higher death rate, uh, just only, not even talk, talking about migrations, but this is kind of, this is a pure, direct <coughs> demographic losses. 
and other elements is just uh, the falling sh share of men population as a percentage of total Russia's population. It is just like after the war, as we have seen after the First World War, after the Second World War. It was a, just a real like war. It's another catastrophe. It's a catastrophe with safety, uh, with law, order, and explosion of criminality. Here you can see the um, uh, kind of the trends for Russia versus the United States and OECD. In 1989, Russia was higher than U.S. Uh, and OECD, but was, okay, just maybe just uh, sli slightly higher than USA, much higher than OECD, but it's kind sort of manageable. After that explosion that never been uh, in the uh, current uh, memory of the Russian population. Uh, another uh, demonstration of this is death rate from... Um, so-called uh, external reasons. It's a kind of the killings, murders, suicide, and so on. Uh, Russia uh, very differ, uh, very different not only from these kind of old members of European Union, but from new EU members, including Estonia, Latvia. Those countries were in the Soviet Union. So that is what's a big difference, even in those countries that shared the same heritage. Um, uh, so... Uh, social or sociological uh, catastrophe. It is a demonstration of so-called Olympianization of middle class, exactly in 92. You can see the, how uh, these wages in education went down compared to the Russia's average. And because education, the government uh, financed wages, it is a persistent, conscious policy of the government, of the so-called radical reformers. Government to reduce wages and kind of to destroy the some kind of the support, the, the class that's supporting reforms, uh, democratization, and liberal approach. And even the kind of so-called non-reformist government restored this position or tried to restore. Same story with the health sector. I have many others uh, indicators, but have no time to demonstrate. But what is the most important is the so-called Siloviki storm into the top 1,000 political elite. Here is a very important uh, graph, and I would like to attract your attention to this. Uh, under Mr. Gorbachev in 1988, the uh, share of Siloviki of all kinds, certainly secret police, in the top 1,000 political elite in Russia was less than 5%. Five years ago, in 1993, it was already 33%. As you can see, increase in this share was almost 29%, the highest increase in the share of Siloviki compared to any other periods after that, including for Putin's period. So that is why the main, uh, some kind of intervention of Siloviki into the political power in, uh, in Russia happened between these 88 and 93 years. And we know that happened mostly in 91, in 92, and in 93. So that period that has been considered as a radical, liberal, and so on. But from a sociological point of view, it was imputation or kind of inclusion of Siloviki into political power that continues until today. That had a very strong impact on uh, sociology and mentality of Russian population. Look how changed the attitudes of Russian population over the last these 25 years from uh, some kind of reasonable balance between uh, authoritarianism and democracy, now it has moved heavily towards support of uh, autocracy. Here, the uh, 
readiness of Russian population to participate in political life. Uh, 25 years ago, it was some kind of, once again, more or less equal balance between to participate in the political life, not to participate. Now it is a almost total apathy not to participate. Uh, another one is the uh, attitude towards private property and market. Uh, 25 years ago, it was a huge trust that private property and market is the right way to do it. Not anymore. And today, remarkably, that most of people do support plan and state distribution. And another one is a disappointment with the West. Uh, 24 years ago, positive attitude toward the West was overwhelming, 62%. And disappointment was very low, 10%. Now it's a vice versa. So as a result of that, these uh, changes, political changes happened in Russia, and we have no time to discuss it. But my last point would be the why. Why all this happened? And my final answer uh, is that this interest and mentality of leaders in transition. And uh, those interests, they, they talk about this openly. The interest was to exchange state property on personal power. I use the citation from Mr. Chubais. It's just exact uh, citation. Our privatization was unjust. Political construction was to give property to those who stood close to it, bandits, it's exactly citation. It's not uh, interpretation. The words that he used and in Russian bandits is the same uh, sound as, as in English. Communist leaders, red directors, and Gaidar uh, adds, and to military as well to secret police. Ideology, this is nomenclatura, secret police, imperial, even pro Fidel Castro in Cuba. In winter, yet 91, 92, uh, Gaidar sent 200 million US dollars to KGB, uh, GIU, even dropping center in Havana. In autumn 92, he gave the first $1 billion tranche from IMF loan to KGB-owned Eurobank that was engaged in financing uh, sabotage activity in Europe since 1926. Attitudes towards law, it's endless violation of constitution and other laws. Again, the citation from Mr. Chubais. We succeeded because our privatization destroyed people's perception of justice. And he said that it's with his great achievement that he was able to use his privatization to destroy public perception of justice. Attitude towards democracy, genuine hatred. Uh, okay, there are some citations about uh, why it was necessary to dissolve and bomb and shoot uh, the Russian parliament. Attitude towards Soviet empire, protective and nostalgic. The real, also this famous uh, phrase that Mr. Putin is using regularly about the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, uh, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. The real author is not Mr. Putin, it's Mr. Gaidar, nine years before, and Mr. Putin just borrowed this phrase. And attitudes towards liberty and human rights is very negative. In their vocabulary is total absence of such words like freedom, democracy, human rights. So that is why the final answer to this very serious, very painful uh, question uh, that we are facing is mentality of those people who are at the top of the power. If this mentality is against liberty, against freedom, against democracy, against rule of law, against human rights, you cannot get good results. You would receive exactly what you are doing for. And we in Russia receive exactly what they are planning to do. Thanks very much, Andre. We have time now for questions. Let me uh, actually ask the, the first very brief question to each one of our 
panelists, and that is if you could identify one uh, major mistake that was made along the way on the, in the transition, what would you do to correct that mistake or to have avoided that mistake, whether it was made by people in Russia or outsiders or whatever? Shall we start with, with you? Yeah, let me instead uh, try to correct a few things that have been said here. The big thing that is missing is that the Soviet political and economic system collapsed. GDP was falling to the tune of 10% in 91. The budget deficit was probably one third of GDP. We don't have any final statistics of 91 in the, in the Soviet Union. So that's the first point. The second point is that the statistics that Andre showed here of GDP fall are completely distorted. We don't know how to measure GDP over the change of uh, <coughs> system. The old system overmeasure GDP. Uh, in the capitalist system, you avoid uh, taxes, and therefore, and there were no systems to report uh, everything. Probably the decline in GDP was half of what uh, uh, was recorded. It was a big decline, but not that. I, I take complete uh, objection to what both David and uh, Andre said here, presented the Russian reformers who tried to do something good as mean-spirited people who wanted to cause as much uh, damage as possible. Talk about Putin, talk about the uh, oligarch, talk about those who really stole and made uh, big money rather than reformers. I think that this is uh, uh, not acceptable. In order to understand what happened, use a comparative approach, what I've been trying to do. We see Central Europe and uh, uh, the Baltic states that did radical reform, did the full uh, democratization and got Western aid that they uh, 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 succeeded. Thank you. Does anybody want to answer my question? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> can, can I correct my friend Anders? So I think it's really good. Uh, and actually, I was hoping that we would have uh, such a discussion. And actually, I called for such a discussion with my friend back in Russia. Unfortunately, all of them, for 15 years, refused to participate in the discussion to discuss real problems, real mistakes, real numbers. So fortunately, Anders uh, is courageous enough that he took their position, came here and uh, defend his position and their position as well. And I really respect uh, Anders uh, for that because we have probably for the first time really open, honest uh, opportunity to, to discuss <coughs> these issues. As for statistics, uh, the real number for 91 uh, decline uh, in GDP, according to the statistics that we had that time and that has been corrected many times, looks like, the, like this. Uh, GDP of the Soviet Union declined in 91 by 5%. GDP of Russia declined by 3%. And it is now confirmed with many other direct and indirect indicators. Next year, 92, uh, already with reforms, decline in GDP in Russia was by 14.5%. That just give you understanding what has changed and what was real catastrophe before that or after that. 
Um, uh, as for budget deficit, budget deficit in 91, it is rather hard to, to calculate because uh, statistics has been intentionally destroyed by new government and by Minister of Finance, who was Mr. Gaidar, did not calculate uh, last financial indicators of the Soviet Union. Nevertheless, it was possible to restore this data, and it looks like that the budget deficit for the Soviet Union in 91 was about 15% of GDP, which was probably jumped from 10% of GDP one year before. In 92, budget deficit of Russia became 23% of GDP, and that is explanation of this huge hype in inflation that happened in 92. Because the money emission from the central bank in 92 only increased 48 times. Not by 4%, not by 8%, not by 48%, by 48 times. Just, just to give you some kind of understanding of this huge mass uh, uh, money emission and the creation of the complete... And who did that, Andrei? Yes. Was it the and, reformers and, or and was most, it the anti-reformers? Yes, and most of this emission have been uh, done on the orders from the Russian government signed by Mr. Gaidar. I specially looked into the archive uh, what has been done, and I found that on almost all cases, with exception of two, uh, is actually the uh, financing of the... Uh, Soviet republics, former Soviet republics, that was partially done by central bank by, by itself. And some uh, credits uh, that have been given sometimes, but mostly of the credits to the uh, government itself and to uh, commercial banks and to special purposes like for purchase of cotton, signed by Mr. Gaidar, uh, the uh, credit to uh, coal industry, but most importantly, uh, credits to uh, companies of military industrial sectors. All of them have uh, a signature of Mr. Gaidar. So even in the summer of 92, there was a big debate between uh, the government at that time and the parliament the, uh, uh, that was headed by Mr. Hasbulatov, who was considered at that time opponent of the government, which was true. So uh, government insisted on the budget deficit of 8% of GDP. That's a kind of official document. And government criticized parliament and Mr. Hasbulatov for suggesting such a huge budget deficit. And government was right that it's better to have smaller budget deficit rather than big budget deficit, better not to have budget deficit at all. But in reality, instead of 8% of GDP, the government produced budget deficit of 23% of GDP. And in the last uh, months of 92, the budget deficit, you cannot, maybe it will be hard to believe, it was 90% of GDP, 9-0. I just checked it many times, it just really, it's unbelievable uh, budget deficit and unbelievable budget emission, uh, credit emission that have been created by the government. So that is why uh, when we look into the real uh, numbers, not on this kind of ideology, not the, the, the stories that we actually used to listen, used to hear uh, all these years, we do have very different picture what really happened in terms of economic policies, in terms of their policy towards personnel and towards sociological strata. But, um, uh, Jan, you ask us, what is the most important uh, yes, event? Yes, I asked for a brief answer. Yeah, just, okay. The mistake has been made on November 6, 1991, with uh, appointment of this new government. Actually, this new government and these new uh, so kind of radical reformers have been appointed without any approval from the parliament.
and from November uh, November 6, 91, until December uh, 14, 1992, the Russian government did not have any approval from the parliament. That was considered by the parliament as a fool, fooling them, betrayal them, because all of a sudden they did not have any power uh, to even just to support those who have been nominated by the president. And especially when the pres- uh, privatization uh, process, privatization policy has been done in open violation of the legislature that has been adopted by the parliament. It was considered as a, vi- uh, as a kind of constitutional crime, which is actually true uh, crime, but they did not have any chance to change this. So that's the basis of that uh, confrontation and later civil war that we have a short uh, civil war in 1993 with bombing of the White House and with the creation of authoritarian constitutions that we have that was approved in, ni- in December 93 that we're having right to, uh, now today and that was masterfully has been exploited by Mr. Putin to enhance his uh, authoritarian powers. Anybody want to answer my question? Yeah, let, let me answer the question. Dissolve the parliament early on, which was possible until mid-November 91. This was a completely irresponsible parliament, accidentally elected 87% members of communists. It was elected on the 4th of March 1990 before uh, democratization with uh, very little information uh, about the candidates. It was without political parties, so it was completely accidental, people. Uh, and if I may say so, I think that's a very important element because it demonstrates the total negligence to the powers, to the deputies who are being popularly elected. We can like them, we can dislike them, but they are elected by people. The government that has been appointed on November 6 have never been elected popular. And they, none of them had any chance to be elected. Neither in 91 nor later. And this is a very important element for future, for today, for, for, for yesterday, for today, for future, um, whom we give political power to those who have been elected, even we like them or not, or who have been appointed without any our consent. Just check, for example, American Constitution, and you would get the answer. Why okay, Russia should be different, give, I don't know. Let's give David a chance to say something. I, I won't take long, especially Excellent. Uh, since we, we want to give other people a chance to ask questions. Uh, I think the, the, the first of all, uh, I want to assure my friend Anders that I don't think the young reformers in all cases were criminals. Uh, I think they were misguided. And I think in each case, it's the story was a little different. I mean, many of them sincerely thought that what they were doing was the right thing. But they neglected one very important factor, which is that uh, you can't have an economic transformation without the rule of law. And uh, under those circumstances, uh, the the criminalization of the country was just inevitable. Um, so that's my comment for the moment. <laughs> okay. I always wondered how you can get the rule of law when you don't do other reforms that uh, reduce arbitrary power. <clears throat> But that's a, that's a, that's that's the age-old debate. Well, the I mean, just the the, uh, the 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 essence of the rule of law is the 
uh, elimination of arbitrary power. And you have that if you've got a separation of powers, including, by the way, a parliament which, which fully supported Yeltsin, elected him uh, president, you know, he, you know, head of the uh, Supreme so Russian Supreme Soviet, and then gave him special powers to carry out reforms. Parliament was not opposed to Yeltsin, but it was his abuse of, of office and the and the suffering that was imposed on the population by the reforms that turned the parliament against him, plus the fact that he was insisting on ignoring them. This is all, basically, these are all details from the early 90s, but the essence of it is that the reform process was carried out lawlessly. And, uh, the, 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 and the, that was not the only alternative. I recommend the paper by Oleg Haverlishin that we published here at the Cato Institute that looked at this uh, record in not just Russia, but all the reform countries and found that the countries that reformed fastest and uh, in the most comprehensive way had the best performance on on institutional reform, like the, the, they the rule didn't of have law. The and Russia of didn't the, of the Soviet Union. Maybe not. But, no, they but didn't it, have the kind Russia of uh, didn't, psychological did not damage. Did do the, those kinds of reforms? And I think that probably is uh, part. Let's go to the. Let's go to the. <laughs> we still have time for questions. We'll take one right there. Hi, my name is Ray McGovern with Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. I find this a most remarkable discussion. The word United States was not mentioned once, as though these matters could be uh, talked about and the U.S. policy be hermetically sealed away from them. Now, uh, I would point out, for example, that while I have nothing to dispute with Mr. Satter's description of what happened since 1991, but when he says everything makes sense and then suggests very clearly that this explains, quote, the war in Ukraine, I have real problems with that. But my real problems come with uh, Mr. Iralyonov, who really uh, had some very weird statistics on his charts. 2013. <laughs> Hybrid war waged by Putin in Ukraine? I'd like to know more about that. 2014. Now, what happened in 2014? Oh, it's the annexation of Crimea. Well, what happened before the annexation of Crimea? Sorry, I forgot to say brief Regime? questions. Yeah, have, uh, have so, a question. here, so if you have a question, please ask it. My question is, have you not heard that the United States that the Western Security Services, I don't want to give too much credit to my alumni organization, the CIA, there were fascists Let's from ask Poland the question, please. Why are, you, are, you please. Un, are you unaware that the United States mounted a coup in Kiev okay. on the 22nd right. of February, uh, okay. 2014? Can we, we got the question. Okay, Let's, I, what I would like to do is take, what, okay. I would like to ask several, We'll take, we'll take several questions. We're taking several questions. Yes, go ahead and identify yourself and your affiliation, please. Uh, hi, Carl yeah. Golovin. I apologize if this isn't less controversial. Um, <laughs> May, make it a brief question, please. Well, I'm wondering if we can tr trace the conflict centric to Russia 
to the history of central banking, the powers behind it, and honest money versus usury. And as a focal point in history, the Fourth Crusade of the papacy sacked Constantinople, where gold coin circulating was the honest money in 1204 AD. Since then, the rise of Italian-based central banking, the Rothschilds, central banking of the West. Sir, briefly, is, well, I'll, I'll boil it down to two questions. Let's get to the one, question, please. I'm... Did Western banks, uh, Wall Street Bank, finance the Bolshe Bolshevik Re Revolution? And two, is the Central oh Bank of God. Russia currently submissive to the Rothschild yeah. central banking system? Just, just, just. Okay, let's, uh, let's take a, there's a question up here in, in front, please. There's a question right here in front. Hi, my name is Christina. Um, post 1989 and in the 1990s, we've seen um, a lot of the post-communist countries, uh, you know, including uh, Poland, Ukraine, uh, sorry, not Poland, uh, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria. We've seen them implement a lot of a lot of reforms. Uh, why? Mostly because they wanted to join the European Union. Um, and I'm just wondering, and I know this question is a bit naive, but did Russia at any point in time consider perhaps obviously not joining the European Union because that would never happen, but did they consider getting closer to the EU economy and if not, in a hypothetical world, do you think if getting close to the European Union economy would have created any reforms in Russia that would have, you know, nowadays it would be a democratic country in the real sense? Okay, you want to... Well, take a couple okay. more. We'll ta uh, let's take a question right back there, please. Try to be more di diverse in the area. Uh, Ilya Soman, George Mason University. Uh, one thing that wasn't mentioned much was the uh, Putin regime's promotion of Russian nationalism and using it, its use of it to consolidate power. So I wonder if uh, people might want to, on the panel, might want to comment on uh, the role of nationalism uh, in the deterioration of democracy and liberty in Russia. Thank you. Why don't we uh, t take uh, answers to those last? Uh, let me respond to the EU question. Uh, <clears throat> yes, indeed. Uh, the, the European Union did nothing for the former Soviet Union, drew a clear line with the Baltic and Central European countries. Uh, 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 and the, these countries early on got massive market access. So by 2000, two-thirds of the exports of these countries that later joined the European Union went to the European Union. This was very important, early market access, and the perspective early on through Europe agreements to eventually become a member of the European Union. Helmut Kohl, otherwise a great politician, said early on, I think it was in 1990, that, uh, 91, that Russia is too big, so that Russia cannot become a member of the European Union. And he was the person who, in 91 it must have been, and he was the one who was uh, most uh, spectacularly friendly with Russia at the time. And when Russia got a cold hand, of course the whole of the former Soviet Union got a cold hand from the European Union. Also, the market access was minimal 
for uh, the former Soviet uh, uh, republics into the European Union. And then you don't get the, the effect of all the legal and democratic standards that the European Union stands for. So what I'm strongly in favor of is that the European Union now acts as it did towards Central Europe and the Baltic states towards uh, the countries in the uh, eastern neighborhood, uh, Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia. But uh, the European Union gives too little, offers too little uh, market access in spite of now having offered the association agreement. And from today, actually, visa freedom uh, for Ukraine and Georgia, which is a big positive step forward. Thank you. All right. Uh, uh, first question concerning the hybrid war in Ukraine. Unfortunately, we have a, uh, enormous information about enormous uh, amount of data. Um, the hybrid war against Ukraine have been launched publicly by Mr. Putin in city of Kiev on July 27th, year 2013. It is a publicly available video materials of his visit to Kiev on the case of 1025th anniversary of Christianity, of, Christian, uh, of Christianing uh, Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, and so on. And he made a speech that opened this hybrid war. And after that, a lot of happened uh, on the side of Russia, economic, information, uh, sabotage, activities against Ukraine. All this happened before Maidan, before Mr. Yanukovych uh, some kind of relinquished his power and uh, run from Ukraine, even before Mr. Yanukovych has been invited on November 9th, year 2013, uh, to Russia, but he didn't go to Moscow. He was not brought to Moscow. He was brought to military base by Mr. Putin. And uh, it was a special presentation for Mr. Yanukovych, and once again, November 9th, year 2013, where Mr. Putin explained to him what would happen to him personally and to Ukraine if he would sign agreement with European Union? After that, uh, Mr. Yanukovych went back to Kiev, completely destroyed, and uh, took a decision one week later not to sign agreement with European Union. It's a lot of uh, about this information. If you are interested, I would recommend to look into my presentation in Atlantic Council, uh, if I'm not mistaken, April 7th, year 2015. Uh, it is available publicly on websites and a lot of more information available in many other sources. I would like to see other sources. That's all right. Okay. Exactly. You can do it. It's just it's at your disposal. Uh, second, uh, Russian Central Bank is not submissive from my point of view to any pressure from Western banks. Uh, in 91, 92, it was maybe kind of it was influenced by own ideas, own mentality, sometimes by wrong approaches, sometimes right. That's recently, but that's the most important factor. So the Western factor here is very negligible. Uh, instead, uh, it, with exception of the period uh, between 95 and 98, when the West, especially IMF, did play a very important role in uh, putting pressure on the Russian authorities to uh, conduct absolutely wrong economic policy of the fixed exchange rate, or almost fixed exchange rate, so-called during the currency corridor between July 95 and August 98. That prolonged the Russian recession that we were talking about for about four years and led to the uh, economic uh, catastrophe of August 98 with the default, with devaluation, and so on. The responsibility for this policy should be shared between the Russian authorities. Some of them have been mentioned already in the IMF. 
that's a fact of life. Unfortunately, there is some also uh, elements in this, but that's, that's a fact of life. 91, uh, policy of the Hungary, Poland just wanted to join European Union. Um, that was a very strong desire uh, among Russian Democrats, uh, real Democrats and liberals, uh, to follow this path. Uh, the party Democratic uh, Russia, headed by Galina Starovoitova, my uh, good friend all those years, uh, put its program, it was an element of program, that Russia is considering uh, itself as a, in future as a part of European Union, and as a part of NATO. It was official element of the program of this particular party. As you know, Galina Starovoita has been assassinated on November 20th, 1998. And since then, none of political forces in Russia was courageous enough to take this position, with one exception. This one exception is Mr. Vladimir Putin, who in the period between 90, uh, year 2001 and year 2003, officially took a position that Russia should join NATO not European Union, but NATO. And he made these statements uh, both uh, behind the doors and publicly many, many times that he can see Russia as a part of NATO. So that is why if you look into or listen his uh, statements today, you would understand, at least you would think, what is the real position of this person, whether Russia should be a member of NATO or should be antagonist, an opponent of NATO. But this is a different story. But this is a fact of history. And last point about the Russian nationalism, uh, certainly it's a huge topic, it's impossible to discuss it, but if you are taking the element of the uh, Russia's, uh, the current Russia, the current Russian regime, Kremlin regime, aggressive policy towards neighbors under the so-called umbrella of Russian world or some kind of creating some kind of uh, new arrangements. So unfortunately, it is not only position of the uh, current authorities, maybe to, in such a drastic way it is right now, but it, is, it can be seen in the previous government as well. Uh, during Yeltsin time, there was uh, two wars waged against Georgia, one in Abkhazia, another in South Ossetia, another war against Moldova. Uh, so it was under Yeltsin. So that's just, that, yes, there is a, a qualitative, a quantitative difference with the current regime, but in some sense, it's comparable. It's not uh, Mr. Putin who invented uh, the concept of so-called liberal empire that Russia should dictate neighbors what kind of policy they should uh, conduct. It was Mr. Chubais, the official position of party SPS on the uh, parliamentary election of year 2003. So unfortunately, with exception of Galina Starovoitova, uh, Vladimir Bukovsky and several other people like Sergei Yushenkov, who have been assassinated as well in Russia, not many Russian politicians were able to take a really uh, nation-conscious position not to intervene into the business of our neighbors and to respect fully their sovereignty, their interest, their independence, and internationally recognized borders. I'm really sorry to say that we have run out of time. Um, we've left a lot of uh, topics on the table, unfortunately, but as you can see, even like-minded uh, scholars can have very different interpretations of what's happened in the last 25 years. I want to thank our speakers and ask you to join me in thanking them for their thoughts today.